You're listening to The Pocket and the Pendant by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Michael and Evo's Dragon Page and Podiobooks.com. The full book is available in Podiobook format at Podiobooks.com. The full print version is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Lulu.com, or from the book's website and blog at www.pocketandpendant.com. A very strange little boy. On April 8th at exactly 3.38 in the afternoon, the world stopped. It was as though the fabric of the universe had become slushy, heavy, drenched, and waterlogged. Objects became irrevocably stuck, as if the very world were a computer program that had crashed. Sounds became muddy and lethargic. A tape played back at failing battery power. And then... An eternal pause. Flags vigorously snapping in the breeze, now hung impossibly still like crumpled paper. A lightning strike from a vicious storm froze into a living arc of thick, soupy electricity, stretching from ground to cloud like a rope of light. A multitude of butterflies became a still mist of orange and yellow, blades of color tilted at every angle imaginable. A thousand million conversations stopped in mid-sentence, half a thousand million mouths still full of words. People froze into curious living mannequins. Airplanes hung suspended peacefully in the skies, untroubled by gravity. A baseball floated in the temporal goo between the pitcher's mound and home plate. There was no sound. There was no roar of planes or cars or computers or telephones or radios. The everyday frantic din, the meaty warp and woof of the world of humans, was muffled as if with some cosmic cotton. A profound and numinous silence swallowed the world. It would do more justice to write it thus. Silence. On April 8th at exactly 3.38 in the afternoon, the world stopped. That is to say, except for a few people. Max Quick was a very strange little boy, indeed. You wouldn't think so to look at him. On the outside, he looked more or less like any other boy of 12 living in Starland, California. But Max Quick had to start off every single day by punching himself in the head. Every night when he went to bed, Max would stay awake for hours, dreading the moment the next morning when he would have to punch himself in the head. And this wasn't a little baby punch we're talking about here. This had to be a good punch, a nasty hard punch, one that hurt a lot. If Max didn't do a good job of punching himself in the head the first time, well, he'd just have to do it again, and again, until he got it right. The reason Max had to start off every single day by punching himself in the head was that Jack McNulty made him do it. Jack McNulty was an evil, red-haired older kid, and he ran the bus stop. Jack wouldn't let Max get on the bus until he'd punched himself in the head. And if he wasn't on the bus, then he missed school. 
If he missed school, all kinds of other bad things happened from there. He knew. He tried it. Punching himself in the head was actually better. And it was no use begging the bus driver for help. She didn't care one bit whether he was on the bus when she closed the door and drove off or not. She just looked at her nails, popped her minty green bubblegum, and shrugged. I'm doing you a favor, McNulty would tell Max. I'm toughening you up. McNulty used to just beat Max up himself, but McNulty started getting detention for it. But this way, it was actually impossible for McNulty to get in any trouble. Max was punching himself in the head, after all. McNulty had nothing to do with it. There were even witnesses. Max wound up and pounded himself right in the eye. Today was eye day, yesterday had been chin day, and before that, forehead day. He hated nose days. Those were the worst of all. Eye days always looked bad, but actually didn't hurt so much. Afterwards, there was the familiar ringing sound in his head, the stars everywhere, the sick feeling in his stomach. It had been a good punch. But for some reason, today, McNulty wasn't having it. Oh. My. God. What kind of wussy punch was that? McNulty sneered. I, I, I can't. No, I, I just, I can't give you a second chance to punch yourself in the head after that performance. It was just too awful. Max was horror-stricken. No second punch? The bus driver popped her gum, snorted out a laugh at Max, and closed the bus door. McNulty shot Max a look of nasty glee through the glass, and then his attention turned to a new girl in the back of the bus Max had never seen before, who gazed adoringly now at McNulty. McNulty laughed and dropped into the seat next to her. The bus started moving, and the front wheel rolled over a combination of ketchup packs and a milk carton some kid had put under there. Ketchup and milk squirted sideways and onto Max's pants. The bus took off down the road, leaving Max stranded. Not only had he punched himself in the head, the worst part was, today, it hadn't even mattered. But none of this was why Max Quick was a very strange little boy indeed. There was his disease, for starters. Several years ago, he'd been taken to the doctor for a routine checkup, and the pediatrician had been startled, mortified, horrified by what the lab had reported. His blood work seemed to indicate the wrong number of chromosomes, which meant he had some very serious sickness at a genetic level. Either that, or he was actually a goat or something. It was such an extreme thing to have wrong that the doctor had even looked suspiciously at Max, as though he wondered whether Max had switched the blood samples somehow when he wasn't looking, just to goof on him. This one's trouble, Mr. Blistier had snarled when he heard, and obviously suspected Max of the same thing. Mr. Blistier was the director of the Starland Home for Boys, where Max lived. Max had no idea who his parents were, just that he had grown up in the home ever since he could remember. Mr. Blistier was a tall, scrawny man with thin, blue, veiny skin that looked pasted on, barely covering a skeleton. He had eyes that seemed to vibrate in his skull like two little brittle orbs of pure fury. He looked like a garden rake with clothes on and a face. Mr. Blistier said that his name was French and was to be pronounced Blistier. But of course, everyone called him the inevitable Mr. Blister. And for good reason. 
for Mr. Blister saw nothing wrong whatsoever with giving his boy some tough love, as he called it. The boys just called it a plain old beating. Sometimes it was a cane, other times the strap, and still other times just the back of the hand. Spare the rod, spoil the child. But anyway, you sliced it. If you crossed Mr. Blister, it was hammer time, and you came away black and blue and red and blistered. It's not the boy that is bad, it's the behavior that was bad, Mr. Blister would always say with his best genuinely concerned face. But for some reason, it was always the boy that got the beating. Max and the other boys had all heard the rumor of how Mr. Blister had beaten one boy so severely that the kid's butt turned completely black and looked like it might actually fall off in the showers, and the kid's hair turned shock white almost overnight. They all heard how the kid didn't sit or go to the bathroom for a week, and when he didn't seem to get any better a couple of days after that, the boy suddenly disappeared from the home, and none of the other boys had any idea what had happened to him. And of course, no one dared ask Mr. Blister. As for Max's disease, the doctors didn't even seem to have a name for it. In the low whispers that Max had managed to overhear, he gathered that the doctors expected him to develop serious illness and possibly even die before he reached his 18th birthday. But the strange thing was, Max felt completely fine. In fact, he very seldom got sick at all. Max walked and walked and walked some more. Starland was one of those run-down, time-forgotten coastal towns in between Los Angeles and San Francisco. Starland had a lighthouse on a rocky shore next to an old amusement park on a boardwalk with an old Ferris wheel with glittering lights that winked like fireflies in the night and an old, classic wooden roller coaster that groaned and creaked when it ran. And besides the homes, the historic center of town, in Starland, there really wasn't much else at all. As he walked past the gas station, he caught sight of the attendant's television for a few seconds. He could hear the newsman on, saying, Oh yeah, George, today's solar eclipse will be a rare spectacle for most of North America. Then the picture switched to a graphic of a huge, curved black band sneaking across most of the United States. Here in Starland, we won't be in the totality, as they say. We'll only get a partial eclipse. But from about 2.30 through 4.30 our time, much of America will be treated to a total eclipse of the sun. Folks, this won't happen again for another 64 years, so you want to be sure not to miss it. And we're going to have beautiful weather, clear skies across pretty much the entire US of A today, so the viewing conditions should be perfect. Now the man was going on and on about how you shouldn't look directly at the eclipse as you could go blind. Max's eye was starting to puff up and forced his eye close to a squint. Good, Max thought grimly. This'll keep me safe from that stupid eclipse. And his stomach was growling with lancing, shooting hunger pangs. He hadn't eaten since yesterday. But he couldn't go back to the home. Since he'd missed the bus, he would miss school. Since he missed school, he would be beaten and he didn't need another hammer time with Mr. Blister. So, a few hours later, he found himself in the center of Starland in a bookstore, looking through a book about Planet Furious, his favorite band. He was just forgetting his troubles, as the book actually had a whole bunch of pictures of the band he had never seen before, when an old lady in line started staring right at him. This woman was easily in her 90s. She looked very grandmotherly, complete with golden spectacles adorning a caring and compassionate face. 
but she also looked like she must have been someone important during most of her life, as she carried herself with a dignity that lots of people like to think they have, but which very few people actually do. Max felt her eyes on him even before he looked up from the Planet Furious book. When he caught her gaze, she gasped, and her hand flew up to her mouth, and a lone tear streamed down her cheek. Max thought it must be his bruised and swollen eye. It probably looked pretty bad by now, and would certainly be shocking to any grandmother. Oh, he said, putting a hand up to his eye. It's fine, really, he said, his eyes darting around the room, looking now for a quick way out. He didn't need any attention or questions right now about why he wasn't in school, or where he lived. But she was already shaking her head and laughing a little bit, as though she knew exactly what he was doing, and found it amusing. Oh, Max, she said quietly. Max's heart jumped a beat. This woman knew who he was. He had to get out of here before she called the cops, or worse, the school. The old woman was walking towards him now, smiling. Please don't run, Max, she whispered softly, shaking her head. I'm not going to get you into trouble. At that, Max started to relax. Maybe she might even give him some food. She was right in front of him now, studying him intently, as though she couldn't believe what she was seeing. Oh, it is you. I knew it was, she said, shaking her head. But how can it be? I don't understand. But I have no doubt it's you, all right. Max peered up at the woman, but try as he might, he just didn't recognize her. But oddly enough, she didn't seem surprised by that at all. You don't know who I am, do you? She said, eyes twinkling. Max shook his head. The old woman laughed. No, <laughs> I wouldn't expect you to. I look quite a bit different now than I did then. Who are you? Max asked her finally. Why, I'm Petunia, she whispered to him, like she had just let him in on a great secret, and grinned from ear to ear. Max stared blankly at her. Petunia! Oh, come on, Max. I used to be your best friend. Max's eyebrows shot up. Remember? When we were kids growing up in New York. Oh, it was a long, long time ago. It, it seems like a lifetime ago. But even I still remember. Max sagged. The old woman was completely crazy. But he figured he still might just get a meal out of it or something, so he didn't run. Not just yet. But she seemed to sense this from him immediately. Oh, I see, she said, peering down at him thoughtfully. You really don't remember, do you? Max shook his head. Well, you must have a reason. You always did. Something very important, I'm sure of it. Max had absolutely no idea what this old woman was talking about. She was senile, and was obviously confusing him with someone from her youth that he happened to resemble, and it was just pure chance that this person also happened to be named Max. Oh, and I've seen Roseblood. He's actually here, in Starland. I saw him out my window several times the other day. He's been sneaking around. He's looking for something, as usual. He didn't recognize me at all, of course. Oh, that must be what you're up to. Keeping an eye on him, just like you always did. Ah, oh, you were so very brave in those days, Max. And you, you and I had a great deal of fun together, playing in the streets and docks of New York City, in the days when the city itself was young and clean and marvelous. Sparkling buildings, men in top hats with canes. But I can see, oh yes, I can see, you don't remember these things for yourself, and I probably shouldn't tell you any more. Except... She ran her finger over his black eye lightly. Except that you are a lot braver than you think you are right now. 
and there are many people who love you and indeed owe you their very lives, including me. Max fidgeted. He had never done anything to deserve this kind of thanks. He was just Max Quick, a kid who punched himself in the head every morning just to get on the bus to school. I have lived a very long and rich life, and I have you to thank for it. By some chance I do not understand, I have been given this opportunity to thank you for everything. Max had no idea what to say, but it seemed his stomach did. It growled loudly at that moment, and he felt his cheeks flush red with embarrassment. The old woman reacted immediately. Oh, my dear, you're starving. Here, let me at least get you some food. Where are my manners? Max's heart flooded with joy at the prospect of eating. He was so hungry he could almost think of nothing else at the moment, and here she was, actually about to feed him. She took his hand and started to walk with him towards the door, when a voice behind Max startled them both. There you are! Petunia, how many times do we have to remind you to stay with the group? Max turned to see a young man, out of breath, holding a clipboard and wearing a pencil in one ear, looking exasperated. The old woman stopped and explained. Oh, I, I was just talking with my friend Max here. It's been ages since we've seen each other. I was just taking him for a bit of lunch. She blinked as if to say, See? All perfectly reasonable. The young man grimaced and looked down at Max, shaking his head slightly. He bent down and whispered to Max, Sorry, kid. She does this now and then. She gets off her meds and wanders off in a loopy daze, talking to anyone and everyone nearby. <sighs> old people. What are you going to do? The young man laughed and clipped choppy little barks. Max just stared back and felt an immediate intense dislike for this man. And he must have sensed it because the smile ran away from his lips. Listen, kid. My job's hard enough. Getting these codgers to do anything is like hurting cats. The last thing I need is someone encouraging them with their little delusions. After all, it's cruel, leading them on like that, playing with what little is left of their minds. He squinted disapprovingly at Max and then said, And what's wrong with you anyway? Trying to trick a nice little old lady into buying you lunch. That's just evil. Max sputtered back. But I didn't know that's not... Yeah, that's what I thought. We always have to watch out for your kind. Preying on the elderly. Stealing from them. You little freak. In fact, you probably got that black eye from the last one you tried to con. Serves you right. Don't you kids these days have any sense of decency at all? Max was backing away, sensing more trouble coming. The young man moved towards him menacingly, suddenly realizing something. Besides, shouldn't you be in school? Max's eyes shot wide, and the guilty look on his face must have told the young man he was truant. Ha! Thought so! Come here, you little runt! The young man lunged for Max. Max thought for sure he was going to be caught. He was cornered. But just then, the young man lost his footing, twisted and went crashing into a nearby bookshelf. He fell to the floor, and books rained down on him. In fact, several copies of the Planet Furious book, and he cursed nastily. But Petunia was smiling mischievously. Max looked down to where she was looking and saw that her foot was out. She had tripped the young man. Max smiled back in thanks, and their eyes met for a moment and Petunia's twinkled, and then Max bolted out of the bookstore. The young man was in a fury now, up already from under the books and chased after Max. Stop that kid, he howled. He's a thief, thief. He steals from old ladies for crying out loud. Max tore out into the street, dodging cars that honked at him, and onto the sidewalk on the other side. 
Max's heart was pounding as he raced past the Jitterati Cafe, a coffee shop that was all the rage in Starland these days, and was consequently mobbed with mothers who might recognize him. So he hid his face in his shirt best as he could as he flew past. Heads turned, eyes strained to catch a look at him, but nobody actually moved to stop him in between snoodling sips of grande latte. All the same, Max hooked a right down the alley as soon as he was past the Jitterati Cafe and didn't look back to see if the young man was still chasing him. He ran around another corner, and then another, until he was dizzy and lost and didn't feel like he could run anymore on account of his burning lungs. Max found a back entrance into a building next to a dumpster and quickly slipped inside. Elsewhere in Starland lived Casey Cole, a gangly little girl of twelve, with blondish-brown hair that grew in spurts around her rather pretty and freckly face. Her eyes were green and sometimes shy and averted, and sometimes burning hot, furious and proud. Her mom and many other people described her as elfin, which Casey supposed was good because it meant she was cute. Despite this, she wasn't popular at school. She didn't have many friends, really. It didn't help that most of the girls at school were fashion police types who were always snickering and whispering and looking down on you for what you were wearing. Casey mostly wore clothes her mom made herself, not the brands all the other girls were wearing, which of course made her an even bigger target for taunting. And as for the boys, most of them were scared of Casey or thought she was a weird loner. Mostly, though, she was kind of happy loopy and she loved lemons. She was at home with her mother when it happened. She was eating a jelly and lemon sandwich on the kitchen on a stool, like always, after school, when the television suddenly stopped. The picture of the news guy froze in mid-sentence on the screen and went silent. Casey's mom was putting a dish in the dishwasher. She had stopped also. In fact, the sounds of birds and dogs and cars and planes outside had also stopped. The sheer stillness of the world was jolting. Casey blinked in mid-bite. Mom, she said. Her mom remained bent over the open dishwasher, still, dish in hand. Not still, but more than still. Nobody could stay that still. Casey popped down from the chair and went over to her mom. Mom, she squeaked again, this time feeling very sure that something was wrong. She heard the sound of panic in her own voice, and it scared her more that she sounded so scared. She grabbed her mom's arm and pulled. It was hard as marble, heavy as a person on Jupiter. Casey jumped back, startled. What on earth was happening? Casey touched her mom again, pushing against her skin, feeling suddenly like she did when her grandfather had died and she had dared to touch his face in the open casket. There was no give in her mom's flesh, like there is when you touch an alive person. It was like touching metal or stone, hard and not alive feeling, although she could still feel warmth from the skin. Her mom was bending down close enough to the floor that Casey could reach her face. Surely if she touched her eye, she would blink. Casey reached up, half afraid her mom would suddenly come to life and be angry with her for poking her in the eye, but that would be better than whatever was happening. Casey touched her eye, right on the eyeball, and her mom didn't seem to notice at all. Maybe her mom was dying. She had never heard of anything like this before. She had to get help and fast. Casey ran to the front door of the apartment and pulled on the door handle. To her surprise, it was stiff and stone-like as well. Her eyes welled with hot tears now, and her heart raced as she twisted on the handle with all her might. It started to give, but sluggishly, like the lock was coated with tar and molasses. 
And then, after a few more seconds of her twisting on it, it seemed to warm up, and the door flung open, and she raced into the hallway screaming for someone to help her mother. But what she saw surprised her even more. There were several people in the hallway, all silent and still, just like her mother. There was Mrs. Orlando, the next-door neighbor, and Liam Orlando, her son. Liam was frozen with a look of utter surprise on his face. He had been eating an ice cream cone and had just licked the vanilla scoop a little too hard, and it was now falling off the cone, suspended in mid-tumble, slopping down the back of his hand. Liam's tongue was still out, but his eyes were popped open wide in horror at the loss of his ice cream. There was also Julie, the girl down the hall, putting her key in the lock with her dog after a walk. Both she and her dog were motionless as a painting. Casey walked slowly to Mrs. Orlando. She pushed on her hand, tried to move her arm, but she might as well have been pushing on cement. Liam was the same way, flesh like warm stone and impossible to budge. Then she went down the hallway to Julie and her small dog. Even someone small like Casey should have easily been able to pick the dog up, but when she reached down and tried to get hold of it, she found that the fur was stiff and prickly and felt like a Brillo pad or steel wool instead of soft and furry. And even straining with all of her strength, she could not lift the dog from the ground. Going back into her apartment, Casey went to the phone and tried to pick it up. Like the door had been before, it was stuck and heavy and didn't seem to want to move for a few seconds, and then suddenly it came free and she put it up to her ear. It was dead. She dialed 911 anyway, which she felt guilty about because you're not supposed to dial 911 unless it's a real emergency. And this was very weird, but she wasn't completely sure it was an emergency. But it didn't matter. The phone really was dead. Casey went to the window and looked out into the city block below. It was the same down there as it was up here. Everything was perfectly still, like a three-dimensional picture, like a giant vieworama she was inside of. Has something happened to the world? thought Casey, or something happened to me. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Two, The Pocket. Max found himself in a long, musty-smelling cement hallway near a loading dock. There was a sign leaning against the wall that said, Starland Museum of Antiquities, Exhibit, Ancient Sumer, The Cradle of Civilization. April 1 through April 28, don't miss it. He wasn't sure what was meant by Ancient Summer, exactly, but he was proud of the fact that he actually knew how to spell the word summer correctly, unlike the stone brain who had made that sign. But Max didn't want to get caught. He was just going to find a door and get back outside again, so he kept running despite his burning lungs. He went around a few corners and then found himself in a hallway with a hardwood floor and glass museum cases on either side. 
The cases held items that looked Egyptian or Roman, pieces of broken things with little cards next to them, plates, wheels, pottery, etc. There were a couple of bigger cases with what looked like mummies in them, and even a sarcophagus. Max kept running down the hallway, trying to keep his sneakers from making the basketball sneaker squeak on the hardwood floor, and he winced painfully each time he failed. He kept looking for an exit, but none of the doors were marked, and the ones he tried along the way all seemed to be locked. Finally, near the end of the hallway, he found an open door and raced inside. Max was startled to see three men dressed entirely in black suits, standing in a large museum storage room that looked like it had been ransacked. Max's heart stopped cold. Had he just walked in on a robbery? The three men just stared at him for a moment, barely moving, having just looked up from going through the contents of the room, as though his presence was hardly anything that mattered at all. There was a fan humming in the corner. There was a sound of paper flapping in the breeze. And Max could hear his heart thumping so loudly that these three men could certainly hear it, Max was sure. And then, one of them just sighed. He reached into his pocket and pulled out what looked like a deep blue sparkling diamond shaped into a smooth, palm-sized egg. The others went back to work like nothing had happened. The man put the blue diamond egg up to his eye. He looked through it at Max. Max looked back, seeing the man's eye huge, as though in a magnifying glass lens, just staring at him, tinted blue and blinking. Max wondered what he was doing. Um, Max said. Sorry, I, I was just looking for my my dad, but he it doesn't seem to be here, Max lied. The man looked suddenly confused. He pulled the gem away from his eye, looked at it, and then put it back up to his eye and looked through it at Max again as though he were trying to burn a hole in him. Blink, blink. So, I I'm just going to go try to find him. One of the other men looked up from his work, irritated. He grunted at the man with the blue diamond egg. He snapped it away from his eye again and shot a confused look at the other man. But just then, another man entered the room. This man was dressed in an impeccable black suit, with long black hair slicked and neatly pulled back into a ponytail. He carried a cane with a blood-red ruby laid into a golden claw that gripped it out of a black iron shaft. His hands were covered by red gloves, the exact color of blood from a fresh cut. His face was grayish-white, and Max winced involuntarily when he saw that the man's skin was literally covered in thousands of white scars, crisscrossing his cheeks, his neck, as though he had once been flayed mercilessly by millions of miniature whips. Yet his features and bone structure were crisp and bold, European, mysterious, and strong. You couldn't quite say what nationality he was. Could he be Italian, or Egyptian, or Spanish, or Slovak, or Gypsy? It could have been any of those. Mr. Siren, one of the men began, but Mr. Siren waved him silent. His inky black eyes came to rest on Max and narrowed somewhat. He looked suddenly perplexed, as though he were trying to remember something, but hadn't quite got hold of it in his mind yet. Siren shot a look at the man holding the blue diamond egg. Why is this kid still standing here? The man shrugged as if to say, It didn't work. Something must be wrong. Siren sighed and gave him a look that said, You incompetent dolt. Then, without warning, Siren was philosophical, amused even. And then there was a boy, 
he said, waving his hand dramatically at Max as if to say, Voila! And the boy was summoned out of thin air. He circled Max warily, as though he were a serpent he had nearly tread upon unwittingly. And yet, there is something oddly familiar about this boy, who has appeared seemingly by coincidence. But, since I don't believe in coincidence, there must be a deeper meaning to why this boy is here, and why he seems so familiar to me. I wonder, what could it be? As he said this, Siren's hand came to rest absent-mindedly on a large old book on a nearby table. His spindly, insect-like fingers drummed along the cover. For his part, Max was surprised to find that there was something disturbingly familiar about this Mr. Siren also. Then Max caught a flash, a snippet of something. He blinked in confusion and tried to concentrate. And then, suddenly, unexpectedly, Max had it. His mind erupted into vision. It was the dead of winter, in an eastern or European city. It could have been New York or London, Max wasn't sure. It was a long, long time ago, hundreds of years ago. Max was somehow positive of that. Gray skies, smoke-filled air, brick, slipshod houses. Now, a man entered the vision. The man was dressed in a red velvet top hat and red and black flowing cloak. He walked slowly, and each of his footsteps crunched mercilessly along the frozen cobblestones with an unnatural loudness. Terror sliced through Max's stomach, as if he had just swallowed a squirmy snake. Plumes of frosty breath issued at regular intervals from underneath this gentleman's rosy chapeau. A cane, iron, topped with a blood-red ruby, clanged on the street pebbles like a cold scream. The man stank of rotting black roses. Flashes of coffins and charnel houses punctuated the vision in split-second jabs. As the man approached, the brim of his top hat tipped up to reveal his face, and Max saw that it was the same man who was in front of him right now, this Mr. Siren, with the same white face slashed and scarred as if by a hive of mad pixies. But as suddenly as this thick and syrupy dream had come upon Max, it evaporated into mist, and was gone as if it never was. Siren's brow furrowed nervously, and he pulled out an antique pocket watch and checked the time. He chewed something under his breath, and then snapped the timepiece shut and slipped it neatly back into his pocket and said, Grab the boy! We don't have time for this. Never enough time. Time is the thief. Always the thief. Siren turned, and the man nearest Max was suddenly on top of him like a pile of bricks, clutching Max by the back of his neck with a big, meaty paw and squeezing. Max winced and let out a cry, and found his shoulders hunched involuntarily, and that his upper body was immobilized. The man forced him to walk forward, and then shoved him down into a nearby stool. "'Sit!' the burly man said. "'Sit!' the burly man said. "'Don't move, or I'll give you a lot worse than that!' He released Max, who rubbed the back of his sore, red, stinging neck. Mr. Siren, um, I, I think she's calling you back, said one of the other men with a note of fear in his voice. He was leaning over what looked like a large, inky, black crystal ball set into a stone foundation with cuneiform symbols carved around the base. Max noticed that the object, whatever it was, seemed to be part of the Starland Museum's exhibit. There was a visible piece of masking tape with an inventory number taped to the base. 
The ball itself appeared utterly ancient. It was chipped and there were deep pox gouged out of it, like a bowling ball someone had been careless with. Yet despite this apparent damage, the thing was working. The insides of the ball swam with a red, watery light that was growing brighter and starting to form into... something. Siren stood with a look of mad anticipation gripping his sharp features. Answer it, Siren howled. Make it work, quickly! I, I, I don't know how, the man stammered. Ah! Siren spat and pushed the man aside and ran his hands frantically over the object as though seeking a button to push, some way to engage it. We can't have trouble with it now. Not what she's trying to call us back. How did we make it work before? The man asked Siren. There was a Nuberian artifact nearby. A relic, a piece of bone. But then the burly man cut him off. Mr. Siren, you want I should get rid of the kid while you're talking to her? He shoved Max off the stool towards Siren. And just at that moment, Max lost his balance and stumbled forward. As he tried to keep from hitting the table, he flailed his arms out in front of him, and Max's hand landed squarely on the crystal ball. As soon as Max's palm made physical contact, the entire room was flooded with raw light, like a halogen lamp suddenly cranked up all the way. At the same time, the diaphanous image of a woman's head suddenly appeared inside of the ball. She was facing away, so Max could only see her from the back. Nevertheless, he could make out a black mass of long hair. There was a kind of shimmering interference to the image, as though they were viewing a transmission of some sort riddled with intermittent bursts of static. Siren stared at Max with amazement. So, you really are an interesting little boy. Then he addressed the burly man who held Max by a bony shoulder blade. Hold him for a moment, and don't let him get away. Siren turned his full attention to the woman in the crystal ball. She spoke to him. Thou art Johnny Siren, she said without preamble, her voice flanging. Yes, Siren answered, his eyes wide with amazement. I am the daughter of Enlil, she continued. Siren gave a slight head nod. I am humbled, and I thank you for this audience. She considered this for a moment and then spoke again. We have been told of thine offer, and we are intrigued. However, we wish to know what thou wantest in return. Her voice betrayed a slight irritation, as though she were stooping to talk to Siren and greatly resented having to do so. But Siren only smiled. You have heard of Gilgamesh. Yes, of course, she replied and Max could almost picture her smiling coyly. I understand. The woman seemed to consider for a moment, and then spoke quickly to someone nearby that was out of view of the ball. Then she returned her gaze to Siren. Then we have a pact, thee and I. Siren nodded, clearly very pleased that his offer had been accepted, whatever it was. And how long before I see you? It will be now. Siren's eyes popped open in surprise. This was apparently much sooner than he had guessed. The time is different for us than it is for thee, she offered in answer to his stunned expression. Her voice suddenly slowed down like a tape on the wrong speed, and snowy static crackled across her image, as if to emphasize the point, and then returned to normal. And we have the Chrononomicon, 
We must act now or not at all. She looked to her right and nodded to someone. We must also end this conversation. It is too dangerous for us to continue it any longer. Look for our coming, Johnny Siren. And with that, the image of the woman's head blurred and then dissipated. All light in the crystal faded, and it went dark and dead as midnight. Siren looked ecstatic. The smile on his bone-white angular face made him appear like an evil clown. Then Siren turned to Max. You, my young friend, you are far more than you appear to be, aren't you? Max shrugged. For the second time today, he had no idea what some odd grown-up was talking about. You are not here by coincidence, for there is no such thing. Everything is a meaningful synchronicity, always a subtle interplay of meanings encased within still other meanings, weaving a tapestry that we can only see a small strand of at any given moment. At the bottom of chaos resides a sublime order beyond even our wildest imaginings. There is free will, yes, of course, but it is simultaneously true that your destiny is already written in the stars. This is not a contradiction. No, you and I, we have met for a reason. In fact, I even believe we may have met before. But alas, as much as I would delight in holding you here, to learn your secrets, to pry them from you, as it were, gasped word by gasped word, it appears I am compelled to release you. The tyranny of the page demands it of me, and even I am bound by its harsh strictures. So, you may go. Siren made an exaggerated gesture with his red ruby-tipped cane towards the door and bowed but his eyes still danced with cruel mirth. Even though Max didn't understand what was happening, he understood enough to know he was being given a chance to get out of here. He didn't bother to consider whether it was a cruel taunt or a trick of some kind. He just bolted out the door before Siren changed his mind. But Siren and his men gave no chase. Max was already out of earshot, but as he fled, Siren said, Unfortunate. But we would only endanger ourselves if we held him now. Not to worry, though. We will see him again. And quite soon. And Siren's white scarred fingertips tapped the large ancient book resting on the table. Casey Cole was growing more panicked and lonely with each hour that passed. She had been outside her building, walking through the streets and into the shops nearby and everyone and everything was frozen in time. It seemed to have happened to everyone, except to her. She thought at first that maybe this would end soon or was a bad dream, but several hours had now passed and nothing had changed at all. She couldn't bear to look at her mom anymore. It was just too sad to see her so near, but completely still and basically not there. Maybe it will be like this forever, she thought, and tears streamed down her cheeks. This was horrible, to be completely alone and scared like this. What was she going to do? She was starting to panic. She could feel it. Her mouth was getting dry and coppery tasting, and her scalp was prickly, and she was starting to breathe faster, hyperventilating. She ran up to her room. As she passed her full-length antique mirror, she caught a reflection in how sad and afraid she looked, and that scared her even more. 
Her cheeks were rough and flushed from crying so much and her eyes were red. But she walked towards her reflection since it was the first moving, breathing thing she had seen for hours and hours. She put her hands up and touched the glass, watching her reflection do the same thing. Maybe this is the only other living, moving person I will ever see again, she thought, and felt a fresh backdraft of hollow panic well up inside of her, and then it was literally all around her. Her hand suddenly pushed through the glass, as though it had suddenly become the surface of a pond. She let out a gasp. She fell forward through the mirror. Max ran as hard as he could through the Starlin Museum of Antiquities main exhibit hall. His lungs were on fire and pounding. He couldn't believe that Johnny Siren and his men didn't seem to be coming after him. This actually worried him more than anything. He expected to see them around every corner he turned, suddenly pouncing on him from the shadows. But they seemed to be letting him go, for real. Which made absolutely no sense at all. Already he could see the heavy, wooden front doors of the museum ahead, standing two levels tall. The doors led to the street outside. Once he made it through, he was probably safe from Mr. Siren and his men, for the time being. The museum was thankfully closed today, and there were no people at all inside, giving Max a clear shot at making it out. So Max made a mad dash for the front door. When he reached it, he turned the handle, heard the lock give, and then threw himself against it with all his might. It opened. He spun once and bounded forward down the stairs in front of the museum. But he hadn't counted on someone being right in his path. Max ran smack into a delivery man carrying two armfuls of ancient vases. He hit him full speed, chest level, just as he was coming up the front stairs. The man yelped in surprise and lost his balance. The vases squirted out from under his arms like slippery watermelons. The man fell backwards down the stairs. His arms flailed, spinning like windmills. And Max was going down with him, vases flying in all directions. The delivery man and Max locked gazes for a moment. Max's heart sank. This was just his kind of luck. This man would probably break his neck, and the vases would probably turn out to be worth millions of dollars. And it would all be blamed on Max. And to top it all off, Max would probably break his own neck. The whole thing was so surprising, so horrifying, that it seemed to be happening in slow motion. Which is when Max suddenly realized it was happening in slow motion. The world was somehow turning heavy, slushy. The delivery man's deathly backward plunge had become a choreographed picture of slow-mo grace, a dance along the knife edge of the stairs. The vases spun in the air like they were weightless in space. And then, Impossibly, everything just stopped altogether. The delivery man, the vases, silence. Max's momentum had carried him over the stairs with the delivery man, but now the man was just floating above the stairs, and Max found himself clutching the man's shirt sitting on top of him. What the? Max just sat there for a moment, catching his breath, heart pounding, eyes wide in disbelief. Hello, Max shouted at the man. His eyes were open and he was staring straight ahead, but he seemed comatose. He didn't blink. Hey, wake up! Nothing. Max unclenched his hands and then gathered enough courage to peer over and look beneath the man to see what was holding them up. Nothing. Nothing was holding them up. There was nothing at all but air beneath them. 
In a panic, Max slid off the man, climbing down him like he was a tree, hanging onto one of his flailing arms as though it were a branch, and then he dropped to the ground beneath him. And then Max started thinking clearly again. The pounding of his heart slowed, and the sheer strangeness of what was happening started to sink in. What was this? Max backed away and looked around and saw other people on the stairs. There was a woman talking into a cell phone. There was a man eating yogurt. They were all frozen. Dust hung in shafts of sunlight in the air, also perfectly still, not swirling and drifting, but just hanging there immobile, unnaturally. Max turned around and saw something else astonishing. He had left a visible path in the air behind him. There was a Max-shaped tunnel carved into the hanging dust particles. From everywhere he had been in the last moment, where he had been on top of the man, to where he had climbed down to where he was now. And there, just off the shoulder of one of the men on the stairs, was a dragonfly, completely still. Wings not flapping, but suspended in the air nonetheless. As his eyes focused on the dragonfly, just beyond it in a patch of open blue sky, he saw something else that made his eyes pop wide open. For unmistakably, there was a jet airplane in the sky, hanging in the air silently, not moving at all. What was this thing that was happening? He poked at one of the men nearby with his finger and was surprised at how stone-like he was. Then he pushed on him. The man didn't budge an inch. It's like time has come to a complete stop, Max thought, except for me. Was something wrong with time? And if so, why was he not affected by it? Max continued walking back through town in a daze. Everyone and everything had come to a complete stop everywhere he looked. He was suddenly back in front of the Jitterati Cafe, packed with motionless mothers in the midst of prattling on pointlessly about their neighbors' doings. Without realizing what he was doing, Max found himself back in front of the bookstore. There was an ambulance out in front. Max had a sudden horrible feeling and broke into a run around the ambulance to see what was going on. But as he rounded the corner, he ran right into Mr. Blister. Max gave an audible yelp as he rebounded and fell back into the sidewalk. Mr. Blister was scowling and Max kept thinking for a second that he was coming to life in a rage to beat him. But Mr. Blister was frozen in time as well and just stood there like a spindly goblin turned to stone. When Max was finally able to rip his gaze away from Mr. Blister, he noticed that he seemed to be in the middle of a conversation with the same young man who had chased him away from Petunian out of the bookstore. The young man was frozen in the act of talking excitedly to Mr. Blister, waving one arm with clenched fingers, with a little bit of spit froth frozen in the air just in front of his nasty mouth. Mr. Blister was writing something down, taking notes. Max finally got up and gathered the courage to go see what was on the notepad. There were two names written so far, Max Quick and Petunia. Max's stomach felt hollow. Something terrible had happened, and he was in for the mother of all hammer times. He turned to look inside the open ambulance to see whom they had loaded in, but he already knew before he looked. Petunia. There was an oxygen mask over her face, and the paramedics were working on her. But she was unconscious and strapped to the gurney, and it looked as if she'd had a heart attack right after Max had been chased off. Max felt a deep sadness come over him suddenly, welling up out of the deepest recesses of his soul. Seeing Petunia there was shattering something inside of him he couldn't explain. After all, 
He didn't really know this woman, right? They had spoken for less than five minutes total. And now that snarky young man was undoubtedly telling the story to Mr. Blister of what Max had done in the bookstore, how he had, quote, tried to trick her into buying him lunch, and Max was going to be blamed for giving the sweet old lady a heart attack. It was his fault. Somehow, he was going to be responsible for her death. Max couldn't help himself. He climbed up into the ambulance, went to the old woman's side, and looked down at Petunia. He stood there for a moment, and it seemed he went into a waking dream. When he came to, he found he was holding Petunia's hand, with no memory of having ever taken it. Max had to get out of here. He suddenly felt like he was suffocating. Max jumped down from the ambulance, and with a last glance at Mr. Blister, he broke into a sprint, and then into a hard, all-out run, yelling at the top of his lungs like a wild thing. And that's when something curious happened. He found he was running much faster than he should have been, as though his movements were hugely amplified. He stopped quickly and almost lost his balance. He had covered at least half a mile in a few minutes. This was so strange, so unexpected, it completely distracted Max from Petunia and Mr. Blister, and even the oddness of the time stop all around him. He checked to make sure he was okay, and then he started off again at a cautious jog. There it was again. He was moving a lot faster than he normally would be just jogging. He picked up his pace to a full run, and there again, the super speed, the, the whooshing feeling. His legs weren't actually moving faster. It was more like each stride was springier, supercharged, more full of force. On an impulse, he decided to turn left and found it was a lot harder than he had expected. It was like his body had more weight, more momentum. He instantly tripped over his own feet and went tumbling off the road and into a front yard and bounced for a bit and came to a sprawling stop on his face. He was bruised, but nothing was broken. I'll have to be more careful, he thought. After all, he hadn't seen any doctors in Frozen in time. He would probably be in trouble if he injured himself seriously. In fact, he had been lucky the yard had been big enough to allow him to tumble for a bit before hitting anything. Still, this whooshing was interesting, and definitely fun, he had to admit. But what did it mean? Instinctively, he felt the need to grasp the basics of whatever this was as quickly as he could. His survival might even depend upon it. Brushing himself off, he resolved to be more careful, but to try again. He needed somewhere with a lot of open space, and away from trees and houses where he could get used to it. And suddenly it occurred to him exactly where to go. Working up to a jog now, he covered the nine blocks to the freeway entrance as though they were nothing, nothing at all. Staying in the breakdown lane to avoid the time-frozen cars, as much to keep from hitting them as to avoid being hit, just in case time started up again as unexpectedly as it had stopped. Max sped up as he hit the freeway on-ramp, pretending he was a little car himself. He even made a little car noise with his mouth, and then pulled onto the freeway and gained the courage to push his speed up yet another notch. He was running now at least as fast as the cars would have been going if they had not been frozen in time. A little bolt of sheer joy shot through him. The air was whistling by his ears, and although it was time slow and grudgingly resisted him moving through it, the air seemed to warm up and flow around him in a syrupy kind of way as he pushed forward. The countryside whizzed by at an astonishing speed. Suddenly, Max jumped into the air, laughing as he sailed over several cars and into a field of grass off the freeway, and dug his feet into the ground to stop, which took several yards as he overshot where he had intended to halt and tumbled along the ground for another couple yards past that. He had traveled several miles in mere minutes. He wasn't even trying that hard to run fast. 
In fact, Max found he wasn't winded at all. As he got up from the ground, he was surprised at how effortless whooshing from place to place seemed to be. He was already starting to get more control over it. He sped off again, zipping along the pavement in a blur. Suddenly, he twisted his body and dug his feet in sideways, with his body leaning at a tilted angle, like he would if he were stopping quickly on ice skates. A healthy shower of sparks arced up from the ground underneath his sneakers, curling like a breaking wave back under his feet as he slid to a stop. The ground behind him had a small line of fire that simmered soundlessly for a second before going out completely. Suddenly, as he stood there marveling at the feeling of whooshing, a voice fell on him, a loud booming voice speaking in a brackish foreign tongue. It was horribly loud but muffled as well and sounded like a tape does when it's played back at a very slow speed. Max could not make out what it was saying at all, only that it seemed to be issuing commands or giving a speech. It was not a conversation, it was giving orders. The voice seemed so near that it was coming from inside of his own head, it was literally everywhere. Max covered his ears and fell to the ground, wincing in pain, wishing the voice would go away. And then, as suddenly as it had come upon him, the voice was gone. Max got up, but he was gripped now with real fear. That voice had definitely been menacing, not friendly. It urgently made him want to find someone, anyone, else who was as unaffected by the time stop as he was. He was about to take off again and experiment some more when he heard another voice. He instantly winced thinking it was the same voice he had just heard. But this voice was very different. It was small and meek and frightened. It was a little girl's voice. Who is that? Who are you? Can you hear me? Somebody help me. I don't know what's happening. And then she was crying. Max forgot to be afraid, forgot to wonder how he had heard this new voice and how he had known which direction it had come from. And he simply started running again, whooshing as fast as he could towards it. He followed the sound of her crying, whooshing back up the freeway the way he had come, and turned off the ramp and went perhaps 15 blocks up the street into a residential area, cocking his head now and then to listen for her voice and get a fix on it again. As he crossed Royal Ridge Way, built high up along the crest of a hill, he caught a glimpse of the Starland Beach and the ocean beyond, and gasped at the sight. There was something about the entire sea, from horizon to horizon, stopped in time, that was far more shocking than any other manifestation of this phenomenon than he had witnessed so far. He could even make out individual waves, just humps in the water, standing totally and completely still. But he didn't have time to stare. This little girl needed his help. And then he was standing outside of a tall apartment building. He was sure the girl was in here somewhere. He decided to risk calling out. Hello? He yelled and was immediately startled by the loudness of his own voice, since there was no other noise at all. Can you hear me? Yes, came a little girl's voice from somewhere above, now sounding more hopeful. Oh yes, whoever you are, can you help me, please? Yes, I will, I promise, Max called back. But what apartment are you in? 912, she yelled back. The door's open. Hurry, I'm scared. I'm coming right up, Max yelled back. But then he felt a twinge of fear as he suddenly realized he might be locked out. However, he was in luck. An old man had been leaving when the time stop had hit, and the door was still open wide enough such that Max would be able to wiggle by him and get inside. He did so and whooshed up the stairwell, where, luckily again, all of the doors had been pegged open, and entered apartment 912. I'm here, he called out. Where are you? 
Upstairs, the girl said. Keep talking so I can follow your voice, Max replied. Okay, this is me. Tra-la-la, one, two, three, ABC, Casey said. Max followed her voice up to her room and found himself standing in front of a mirror. Hello, one, two, three, and I am Casey. Oh, I see you, she said suddenly. Max was perplexed. You do? he said. He looked behind the mirror as her voice seemed to be coming from behind it. Nothing. Where'd you go? she asked suddenly with a hint of panic in her voice. Right here, Max answered, coming back around front. Oh, there you are, she said. Max's face scrunched up. He had no idea where she was. When he had been behind the mirror, she had sounded further away. But when he was in front of the mirror, her voice seemed to be coming from behind the mirror. Um, Max asked. What happened? I can't figure out where you are. I was standing in front of my mirror, and I accidentally fell forward into this dark room, she answered, sounding as confused as he was. What, are you in your closet or something? No, silly, I would know where that was. Then, what can you see? You said you could see me? I can see out of the mirror. Max's eyebrows shut up. Out of the mirror? What did that mean? Keep talking again, Max instructed. She began the same nonsense talking she had been doing before. Max put his ear right up to the mirror, and he couldn't deny it. It sounded like she was right there, inches away. So Max put his fingers on the surface of the glass. It was solid. It was just a normal mirror. He could see his own reflection. He pushed on the glass. Nothing unusual happened. But just as he was about to pull his hand away, five tiny fingers suddenly wrapped themselves around his hand and gripped tightly. There was a hand now, cut off at the wrist, coming out of the mirror, as though it were the surface of a lake, grasping his own. Instinctively, Max pulled towards him, and a little girl stepped out of the mirror in front of him. "'You got me out,' she said, beaming. "'Thanks!' Max was dumbfounded. He didn't know what to say. It seemed like she had just walked out on her own, that she had just been too scared to do it before now. They stared at each other for a moment, and then Max said, "'I'm Max. Max, quick!' Casey Cole, she replied, rearranging her grip and shaking the hand she had been hanging on to. Do you live here? Max asked. Yeah, she answered, with my mom. She's in the kitchen, but she's frozen like everyone else. Don't worry, Max answered, seeing the look that came over her when she mentioned her mom. I think everyone's okay, including your mom. Whatever happened, it's like they're all asleep, but nothing bad has actually happened to them. Do you really think so? Casey looked up at him. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, Max answered. When this is all over, it will be like the whole world just woke up and they won't even know anything happened at all. Max secretly hoped he was right. Oh, what happened to your eye? Casey asked him, suddenly noticing. Nothing, Max lied, self-consciously putting a hand up to it. Some kid hit me, okay? Max lied again. Is your dad frozen somewhere here too? Max asked, switching the subject. Casey's eyes fell for a second. No, my dad doesn't live here. He's gone. In fact, I've never actually met him, but my mommy has shown me pictures. And there was a hint of sadness in her voice as she said this, and she stared off into space for a moment, and then snapped back to the present. Casey looked at Max again, this time in the eye. How did I end up in the mirror? Do you know? Well, I'm guessing, but I think somehow you did that accidentally to yourself. Me? Casey exclaimed. Yeah, you haven't noticed any other unusual, I don't know, powers since this started happening? No, Casey answered, genuinely perplexed. Why, have you? Yeah, Max answered. Definitely. 
I've been able to run. Well, run's not really the right word for it, but whoosh, I've been calling it to myself. From place to place. You can travel really, really fast, but it's not scary or tiring at all. In fact, I'll bet you can do it too. How? Well, I just started running and it just kind of happened. It took a little getting used to, controlling the speed, but I think I have the knack of it down now. Casey thought about this for a moment and then asked, You just go really, really fast? Yeah, you should try and see if you can do it too, Max answered. Casey looked doubtful, but she asked him, So you think we both have these powers while everyone is frozen? He nodded. Yeah, seems that way. And there might be more we haven't discovered yet. Like whatever it was that you did that made you fall into that mirror. Well, are, are there any other powers you know about? Max hesitated and then said, Well, I don't know if this is a power, but a few hours ago I heard this, this voice, a really loud voice. Oh, you heard that too? Casey exclaimed. Yeah, Max answered. I don't know who or what it was. It was right after that that I heard you call out. And I don't know how, because you were several miles away at the time. Ah, that voice was scary, she replied. Could you make out what it was saying? Max asked. No, it was, it was too loud, she answered. Hmm, Max mused. Well, I don't think it was friendly, whoever it was. So what is this? What's happening? Why has everything stopped? Casey asked. Max took a few minutes and told her quickly what had happened to him so far that day. He told her about Mr. Siren in the museum first, and then about how the old woman in the bookstore had seemed to recognize him. As he was talking about Petunia, he spotted something over on Casey's table that caught his attention. Ah, he said, walking over to it. I was thinking we needed something like this. Is this yours? Max was looking down at a very nice gold pocket watch. It was old, but still in splendid shape. Ooh, that. That's my grandmother's watch. Her name is Petunia, too. I guess that was a popular name back then. Casey said proudly. It's really nice. She gave it to me when I turned nine. Just said to give it back to her when I was done with it. My mom thought she was nuts. But my grandmother got all weird like it was really, really important that I have it. So my mom let me keep it even though she thought I was too young. Max reached down to pick it up and frowned. It seemed to be stuck to the table or weigh a lot more than it should. Casey batted his hand away. Here, let me show you, she said suddenly, confident, and started rubbing the pocket watch. You have to, like, heat it up first. Presently, the pocket watch came free from the table, and Casey picked it up and handed it to Max, proud of herself. See? Max's eyebrows shot up as he looked at the pocket watch in his hand. It now seemed to weigh what it should, and he found he could hold it normally. How did you do that? Everything seems to be like that. Slow and sticky, but I figured it out. If you rub it and, like, heat it up, it comes loose and then you can use it, she beamed. Well, that's good to know. And we need this. Since everything is stopped, there's no night and day. We have no way to tell time. We have no way of knowing how long we've been awake or when we last ate or anything. If we have our own watch and we keep our own time, then we'll know. I don't understand, Casey replied, scrunching her face up. Okay, everything is frozen and has been, but for how long, do you know? Um, a few hours, I think. I don't know. Exactly. For us, as in you and me, a couple of hours have passed. If we had a watch, a heated up watch, Casey smiled when he said this, we'd know exactly how much time has passed for you and me. It might be helpful to know. Oh, I see, Casey said, eyes lighting up. Yes, let's use my pocket watch for that then. Max wound the watch and set it to noon. Okay, it's now officially noon in... In the pocket, Casey suggested, laughing for the first time. We're in our own little time pocket... And this is a pocket watch, so it tells time in the pocket. Max nodded and smiled. Okay, 
in the pocket. I like that. Casey beamed again. A few minutes later, they were in the kitchen. Casey's mom loomed eerily over the dishwasher. Casey was heating up ice cubes, which was kind of an odd thing in itself, and wrapping them in a towel. When she finished, she handled the bundle to Max and said, Here, for your eye. Casey was clearly very pleased with herself and her nurse-like skills. Max took the bundle and felt instant relief when he put it on his eye. Thanks, he said, and the throbbing in his eye socket immediately began to subside. However, he was still very hungry. Petunia had never been able to buy him that lunch, after all. And now the gnawing hunger had returned. But Casey's house seemed to have lots of food in it. Casey, Max said. I am really, really hungry. Do you mind if I have some food? As if on cue, his stomach growled nastily. Well, no, I, I mean, yes, have whatever you want, Casey replied. Max went to the cupboard and started to heat up a cereal box when he stopped suddenly. Oh, no, I just had a very bad thought. We don't know if eating heated up food is actually safe. I mean, what if you eat something and then it slows down again? You know, after it's inside of you. Casey looked dismayed. Well, that wouldn't be good. If you moved, it would rip a hole in your tummy. We wouldn't be able to eat. We'd starve to death in the pocket, Max summed up. But what about water, Casey suggested. I read that you can go for weeks without food, but you have to have water. Max sighed. <sighs> we'll have to test this. With that, he went to the refrigerator and heated up a bottle of water and pulled it out. The contents went from being very sluggish and slow to liquefying. He popped the top and gathered his courage. All right, if something happens to me, you can't drink or eat anything. I mean it. You'll just have to take your chances. Casey nodded that she understood. Max drank several swallows, suppressing a gag reflex as though he were drinking poison. But nothing bad happened to him. The water seemed to remain heated up inside of him. He nodded and said, and I think we're okay, but let's wait half an hour just to make sure. Casey took out the pocket watch and checked the time. Okay, one half hour. Good thing we have the pocket watch, she said, giggling. While they waited, they talked about their situation. So, what are we going to do? Casey asked. Well, I don't know, Max answered. Just wait, I guess. See what happens. Maybe everything will just start up again. But even as he said that, something told him it wasn't right. Casey thought about this for a few minutes and then said, Do you think there's anyone else out there? People like us, who can move around? Who aren't frozen in the pocket? Probably. If there's you and me, there's bound to be others, Max said. Then after thinking for a moment, he asked, Do you have a computer? With internet? Yeah, Casey answered. We have DSL. I'll show you. Maybe we can IM somebody or send an email, Max said hopefully. But the computer wouldn't turn on. Maybe electricity was time frozen in the outlets. They flicked the switch several times before giving up. What about a cell phone, Max asked. Casey nodded and pointed to her mom's purse. Casey seemed reluctant to go rifling around in the purse herself, but didn't object when Max went and found the cell phone. It was a Beepotronic, one of the newer models with a screen and camera. He heated it up and turned it on. The phone came on just fine. It made a little beep and the screen lit up. But it just said, looking for service, and wouldn't let Max dial out at all. Max glumly turned the screen to Casey to show her. Without thinking, Max put it in his pocket anyway, just in case. Okay, do you have a radio? I saw this movie once where the survivors of this huge plague that wiped out almost everyone found each other by broadcasting on the radio. Yeah, in the kitchen, I'll show you, Casey answered. 
The radio in the kitchen used power from an electrical outlet, so they quickly discovered it wouldn't work. But they did find another radio in the cupboard, one that used batteries. So they heated it up, and this one seemed to work just fine. They tuned the radio from one end of the dial to the other, going slowly, listening very carefully to the crackling hiss, but there was nothing at all on any station. Casey and Max eyed each other glumly. Well, we'll try again later, Max offered hopefully. But now Casey announced that a half an hour had passed, and it was both safe to swim again if you had eaten anything, and apparently safe to eat time-stopped food as well. Max promptly raided the refrigerator. After he'd finished stuffing himself, Max started to think more about their situation. We'll have to find more food than what your mom has here, he told Casey, in case we're here longer than your mom has food for. And we may want to take a look around anyway, see if we can figure out more about what's going on. And we should get some backpacks or something also. They both agreed to go to the Starland Mall, which was only a few blocks away. At first, they had some difficulty actually getting into the mall, as the doors were all on motion detectors. It seemed like none of them had been open at the moment of the time stop, but finally they found an entrance where someone had been leaving and were able to get inside. Carefully, they threaded their way around time-frozen shoppers on the escalators up to the third floor. Casey remarked that everyone looked just like the mannequins in the windows of the stores. At a camping store called Bear Essentials, they found some backpacks that were sturdy but small enough to be carried by children their size. Max nodded and tried his on. Casey did the same. Max took the Beepotronic cell phone from his pocket and threw it in the pack. Then he found a canteen each for both of them and nodded in approval. We should also get an extra change of clothes or two while we're here. They easily found clothing. A few pairs of jeans, t-shirts, a flannel shirt and sweater each, some socks and underwear, and they were off. Next stop was a grocery store, the Starlin Natural Foods, at Casey's insistence. Again, they had some trouble getting inside, but once they did, they loaded up on cashew nuts, beef jerky, water, energy bars, trail mix, and a few other non-perishable foods. Then they went back to Casey's. A day went by, then a night, or at least 24 hours as measured by the pocket watch. So Max and Casey slept for a bit. Casey gave Max some blankets as he slept in the TV room on the couch, and Casey curled up in her bed. When she woke up about nine hours later, Casey tapped Max on the head, who was still asleep, and said, Wake up, Max! Max yawned and asked, Is the world still frozen? Yep, Casey replied, and began getting out a cereal bowl and a spoon like it was a normal morning. She put them on the table, and then she went over to her mom and kissed her and said, Good morning, Mommy. I know you can't hear me, but good morning anyway. And she looked sad for a moment, and then resumed getting out a cereal box and trying not to think about her mom anymore. Maybe the government has declared a state of emergency and is doing something about this, and we just don't know about it yet, Casey suggested, hopefully over her breakfast of sugar berries, the red ones, the kind that make your gums bleed, and soy milk. Although the fridge wasn't actively working per se, milk caught in the pocket was still as cold as it had been the moment when time had come to a stop. No, I doubt it, Max replied between crunches. We would have heard something like that emergency broadcast system tone on the radio. They had checked a couple more times, and there was still nothing. And besides, I'm starting to think we're kind of special or immune somehow. Max took a few more bites and then said, I don't think we can depend on grown-ups for help. We're alone. He paused and then added, We have to find out why this happened to everyone else, but not to us. How do we do that? Casey asked. Well, Max said, we can literally go anywhere. Anywhere we want to at all. I mean, we could just walk into the White House, the Oval Office or the CIA, or FBI, if we wanted to. So, Casey asked, not impressed. So we can go looking around if we want, is what I mean. We can try to figure out what happened. 
And since I can whoosh, and you probably can too, we can travel very fast to other towns and see what's happening there. Have a look around. Casey suddenly looked uncomfortable. Well, I, I haven't really been outside of Starland at all. Well, like a couple times. Only two hours away, though. No more than that in my whole life. Well, this is a good chance to go see it, Max said. And, and I have an idea. I'll go find a motorcycle, and we can travel on that for a while instead of you having to learn how to whoosh, if you want. I used to ride dirt bikes, so if I can find a street bike small enough, I should be able to handle it. Casey's eyes lit up at the idea of riding on a motorcycle. It seemed so cool to her, and something like older kids would do, but something which she wouldn't be allowed to do. A real motorcycle? Really? Yeah, Max said, nodding vigorously, and with that, he whooshed away. A few moments later, Max was out in front of a motorcycle place he passed a thousand times on the way to school. The sign outside said, Vicious Cycles, for riders who can't break the habit. Max entered, and almost immediately he saw what he was looking for. Twenty minutes later, Casey heard the sound of a motorcycle gunning outside of her apartment window. There was Max on a Vicious Cycles Sports Devarius model. She grabbed the pack she had prepared and hurried down the stairwell. She wasn't certain, but she could have sworn that she ran down the stairs a little faster than normal. And the pack, which should have been kind of heavy for her, wasn't. But she wasn't sure if that was just her imagination or not. Let's go, Max said, taking her pack and his, and strapping them both to the side of the motorcycle with bungee cords. In minutes, they were both on the cycle, heading east out of Starland. Look, Casey said, suddenly pointing up at the sky. Max followed her finger up to the sun. A piece of it was gone, like a bite had been taken out of it. The eclipse. Max had completely forgotten about it. It was exactly 3.38. The eclipse had begun. And the entire Earth was frozen in time, right smack in the middle of it. You're listening to The Pocket and the Pendant by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Michael and Evo's Dragon Page and Podiobooks.com. The full book is available in Podiobook format at Podiobooks.com. The full print version is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Lulu.com, or from the book's website and blog at www dot pocket and pendant dot com.